0: You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Heat Nation. I'm David Romil, the host of Locked On Heat, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Please make sure to follow the show if you haven't already, wherever you listen to podcasts to get the latest episodes It's small market meets big market Wednesdays on the Locked On NBA podcast. You join Jake Madison of Locked On Pelicans podcast and John Corrales of Locked On Celtics for a look at the NBA week from all angles. Follow the Locked On NBA podcast today on YouTube or wherever you get podcasts. Continuing our What If series over here at Locked On Heat. I think it's been fun going down memory lane a little bit looking at these potential scenarios these spins off of what could have happened and what might have gone differently for a franchise that's had quite a quite a few moments that feel like they're momentum shifting defining to some degree we looked at whether or not devin booker could have been drafted by the heat in 2015 of course there's the formation of the big three And today, I'll be looking at a three-pack of potential what-if scenarios here because they've been suggested by a few of my listeners, and I very, very, very much appreciate that. And I felt it was kind of fun to kind of go down and explore some of these topics, so I'll be bringing them up today. And I'll kick it off with the question about what if Miami had accepted the draft picks for Justice Winslow back in 2015. The last episode, I talked about Devin Booker being selected by Miami and what that would have meant for the franchise. They probably would have been able to get more out of Booker, but I'm not necessarily sure it would have led to a championship. Regardless, this is a completely different scenario. In 2015, the Boston Celtics general manager at the time, Danny Ainge, calls up the Detroit Pistons, who had the eighth pick in the draft, after they watched Justice Winslow sliding down further and further. They offer this treasure trove of picks. Uh, Stan Van Gundy says, no thanks, Uh, I'm not interested. They call up the Charlotte Hornets, who had the ninth pick, and they wind up selecting Frank Kaminsky with their pick. And Michael Jordan, and I think, uh, what's his name, Cho, I think was his last name. I think he winds up saying, no thanks, or at least Jordan wind up uh, saying he didn't want all those picks. And then Danny Ainge gets on the phone and calls Pat Riley. And Pat Riley... Looking at the potential generational talent of Justice Winslow, but then looking at the treasure of, you know, the treasure trove of draft picks that Boston is offering and says, you know what? I'm going to go completely against the grain here. After a lifetime of devaluing draft picks and looking for more proven commodities, while I do have a lottery pick this year, the chance at getting other lottery picks in upcoming years it makes it a no brainer. I'll go ahead and accept the draft picks. And that's where things get a little bit more interesting. Now, now going back in time here and looking through, researching, trying to figure out exactly what they've offered, there's no confirmation. All we've got really is jackass Bill Simmons talking in the Zach Lope podcast and mentioning at some time that it was somewhere around six potential draft picks. Six potential draft picks that might have been offered there. This was on the Zach Love podcast that he mentions there, and Simmons just talks about the six picks. And what I've got as a breakdown here, it includes the 16 and 28 pick in the 2015 draft, the number three pick potentially in the 2016 draft, along with the number 16 and number 23 picks, and the number three pick in the 2017 draft. Now, Boston actually winds up selecting, in 2015, Terry Rozier, and R.J. Hunter. In 2016, they took Jalen Brown, Gershon Yabusele, and Ante Zicic. And in 2017, they wound up taking Jason Tatum because, of course, they wound up trading out with the first pick overall. And uh, Philadelphia wound up having the third pick, and, and they wound up switching there, basically. And, of course, they wound up selecting Markel Fultz their point guard of the future in Philadelphia, uh, who was replaced by their point guard of the past because Ben Simmons apparently no longer interested in being a member of the 76ers. That's a fun discussion for another time. Hey, good to be Philadelphia, right? What an upside there. In any case, as far as the Boston selections here, uh, those picks, I think most of them came from their deal with the Brooklyn Nets, uh, to trade Kevin Garnett, of course, one of the worst trades in NBA history. This is one of those trades that just never wound up happening. Uh, you know, as far as the potential draft picks that might have gone to uh, Charlotte, Detroit, or Miami in this case. So, let's assume that these were still the numbers on the on the table here, as far as the the third pick in 2016, the third pick in 2017, and of course the the 16th pick in 2015. I mean, Terry Rozier, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. Not a bad core there to replace the talents of Justice Winslow, and I, I think if you start to look at what could have happened if they had drafted those players in 2015, I mean the whole timeline changes. It, it's it's impossible, I, quite honestly. I, I appreciate the question, but it's just there's so much to work through. I just don't know how how you can conceive of this. The whole. The whole way of planning for things uh, just changes. The calculus is, is just incredibly off the wall here. Let's assume they just draft the wind up, the players that, they, that actually wind up getting picked here. You've got a talent in Brown and Tatum that you can build around. And from that point forward, I mean, you add that to Goran Dragic, I guess, who's still on the table. You assume that Dwayne Wade comes back at some point. Of course, he winds up leaving in 2016. Maybe he doesn't leave in 2016 if you've got... Terry Rosier there, I know Rozier is a longtime associate of Dwayne's because I don't know exactly what their connection was, but uh, Terry Rozier, one of those rare players that wound up getting a jersey from Dwayne Wade during his retirement tour, and I wonder if that might have been enough to kind of convince him, probably not, but it's fun to, to theorize whether or not that might have been enough to keep him here, let's assume that Dwayne winds up leaving in 2016, You just wind up having, you know, Brown and Tatum here. Can Eric Spolster get the most of them in the way Brad Stevens could not? <laughs> Undoubtedly. Of that, I have no question whatsoever. But think of all the moves subsequent to that. Do you build around, now you have this strong wing core here, something that Miami had lacked for, well, they lacked for a long time? You wind up losing out on Bam and Bio. That's just right away. That's the case. Uh, you know, if you have this great pick in 2017, you're probably a much better team. If you got Jason Tatum in 2016, uh, you probably wind up avoiding the forty-one and forty-one season. Uh, you probably wind up succeeding a great deal. Uh, just, I mean, just by virtue of his incredible talent. I mean, he is a top-three pick. He was a great player in, in Duke, and I think he winds up coming in here and contributing right away. I, I imagine. The timeline probably moves forward. Well, I mean, if you draft Terry Rozier in 2015 instead of Justice Winslow, that doesn't change that season much, right? You still wind up having, uh, you know, you still wind up missing, well, no, in 2015, you wind up advancing all the way to the semifinals against the Toronto Raptors. And, of course, Justice starts at the five in that series because Hassan Whiteside gets hurt and Chris Bosh is out then all of a sudden you've got Rozier there instead of Justice. I mean, I guess you could fill in the roster with some other player. You'd have to have some kind of a backup center in order to to kind of build this roster out to some degree. Uh, then you wind up getting Tatum in 2016. And of course, like I said, with Dwayne Wade probably departing anyway to the Chicago Bulls, you're probably a substantially better player. Uh, from that point forward, you add another great talent in Jalen Brown. And you kind of lean into, I think, a version of the Heat that I suppose, would frankly love, which is much more switchable. Smart players, competent shooters, great cutters. I mean, look, the thing with Jalen Brown is that now he's developed into a lot of, a great player, but earlier in his career, I mean, look, he's still obviously very, very young. Uh, you know, I think you wind up. You know, he, he was struggling somewhat to find his role there. I think he was not quite a star yet, and now he's a borderline all-star. I think he just got more opportunity. But in 2017 here, in this scenario with the Heat, you have these great players here. You don't draft Bam Adebayo because you don't have a lottery pick of your own. Uh, I think you wind up probably building out the roster in different ways. Maybe you can, I think overall here assuming that you wind up taking all these players is one thing. But given Pat Riley, this is so hard to predict because, well, Pat Riley's always used these assets as something else. So even with these six draft picks, what would he have done differently? Well, he probably would have traded for a damn superstar, that's for sure. Uh, Would he have traded them in 2016 for, I don't know, how about this? He probably would have packaged them in exchange for Kyrie Irving. Uh, The draft picks that wind up going to Cleveland in exchange for Irving, and they wind up getting him. I wonder what happens then with Kyrie in Miami. Probably not a great scenario. And not a knock on Kyrie, who I happen to appreciate because he's just, well, anybody who rattles the cages a little bit is always going to be okay in my book. But to me, he's just, he's such a, I don't know, free thinker necessarily because there's some debate about whether or not he just thinks he's the smartest guy in the room or whether or not he actually is. But let's just say his focus, as well as it shouldn't be, is not on basketball 100%. There is lots of things outside of the realm of basketball that kind of keep his interest. And if that's the case, then he's just not heat material, as much as the heat might have been interested in him. But, however, if you have all these other young players and you do wind up selecting him, what other player could you have possibly traded for? At this point in time, could you have made a, a much more interesting package to trade for a James Harden or another disgruntled star a couple of years ago? Would you have entered the, the conversation for acquiring Kawhi Leonard from the San Antonio Spurs? More than likely. I think that seems like a much more likely scenario. So, you know, you're kind of waiting for Jalen Brown to kind of turn it into something. You wind up waiting for Jason Tatum to take into, uh, you know, to do something with his career. And then instead, you wind up just packaging for a superstar. That's the thing here, is that even with all these draft picks, Pat Riley... Was he going to probably just use that collateral for another superstar-level player. I think more than likely it would have been a guy like Kawhi, just a disgruntled star. There, he would have taken a chance on his injury, and maybe they would have been able to get to a championship a little bit sooner. Because then all of a sudden you have a player in Kawhi that you can build around, and you can add other players to. Dwayne Wade comes back, and who knows what happens? I mean, it's a completely different team. You don't, you know, you don't wind up taking Duncan and Robinson. Although, of course, as an undrafted free agent, maybe he winds up complementing what Kawhi could do. Maybe you go and take a chance anyway, but you also don't develop a reputation over the last couple of years of being a team that develops players because, you know, you had 2016, 17, where you take James Johnson, Tyler Johnson, Dion Waiters, Derek Williams, and everybody else. And, you know, they played substantially better when they were in Miami. And I think that kind of shows Miami. It starts to build that reputation much more league-wide that this is a team that can develop, you know, mid-level talent, middling talent, and make the most out of that. And I think that's where the kind of formation of that reputation started taking place. It, It really, look, I mean, that's been something that Pat Riley has done throughout his career, of course, taking John Starks, Anthony Mason, and a bunch of other players throughout his career as a general manager and coach, and just being able to maximize what they can do in Miami. It's mostly been about star level talent, and then finding guys on the edges. But then you know, then again, there's Udonis Haslam and others, so it's interesting. But I, I think the reputation has become much more widespread nowadays. After looking at the last couple of years, and you look at a player like Duncan Robinson, who winds up just getting paid ninety million dollars, and I think that's certainly a great, uh, you know, proof that Miami is able to come in, and if you're willing to do the work, you get paid. So it's interesting to see how this whole scenario would have panned out. I I think it's it's. Very hard to say because even with these draft picks, who knows how quickly they would have developed in Miami's roster? And more than likely, with a pl- with a person like Pat Riley in charge, he's just viewing these as, as assets anyway. Even he's not going to wait for Jason Tatum to develop. He's not going to wait for Jalen Brown to you know become a potential All Star. He's going to say, oh, okay, well, you know, Jimmy Butler's upset. I- I'm going to trade for him in 2018. Was it? Yeah, I, I think maybe he would have sped up the process a little bit, unless he was able to acquire Kawhi Leonard. (laughs) So, you know, again, snowballing here, things start to change. It's just all about how Miami views picks in general. But it also kind of shows what I mentioned in the previous episode, is just how badly people wanted Justice Winslow on their teams. Like, the fact that he slid to 10th is kind of interesting, and it always happens, right? There's always a player that slides, and you wind up wondering why. And maybe the book was accurate on him. Maybe, you know, I, I was reading a lot of the draft reports and profiles. You you never believe the, the player comparison that he that was brought up the most. James freaking Harden. James Harden. People were comparing Justice Winslow to James Harden. Why? Because he shot well in college, because he was a good pull-up shooter, because he could get to the rim. He had elite speed. They thought his combination of size and speed would translate at the NBA level where he would be able to just be more of a – A guy with a ball on his hands and get to the rim at will, and and it's just never happened. And it's just funny how that kind of player comparison uh, just was so way off base, which is partly why I'm not necessarily a fan of the draft, because it's such an inexact science. You're basically just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, In this case, clearly... It did not stick. Uh, You know, Wilson Chandler was another comparison there. And even Wilson Chandler, I think, has had a better career up to this point than Justice, which is kind of sad because I think there's still potential there. But between his constant injury, the fact that he kind of forced his way out of Miami, wasn't willing to accept what happened here. I just, I don't know what's going to happen to him in Los Angeles either. I mean, just in yesterday's Locked On NBA podcast, I was talking about Justice being the potential point guard there, but then I recall, oh wait, you, you made this incredible trade for Eric Bledsoe, you just you bring back Reggie Jackson at the point guard, and so now you've got two starting level competent point guards, I mean, there's some debate as to whether or not Bledsoe is going to be able to produce anything, but we'll see what happens there, I think he'll get another chance under Ty Lue, and I think he'll be able to thrive there, especially because Kawhi is going to be continuing to miss most of the season, so what's the best role for Justice then, is he going to go back to being that kind of wing defender? You know, that's that's the big debate. You know, even looking at these draft profiles, a lot of people had high hopes that he was going to be a star-level player, mostly because he was going to have the ball in his hands. And he said from day one he wanted to be a point guard. Uh, I I mean, it's just never has worked out for him. And I don't know that it ever will at this point. So it's just a matter, a classic situation here where he's never going to tap into the potential that a lot of people erroneously ascribe to him in the first place. He's also never going to be in the right situation and the right fit. Hell, man, maybe it would have been better for him to have gone to, to Boston in the first place. Maybe if they had selected him there maybe they would have plugged him in as a point guard because they wound up taking Rozier anyway at 16, and maybe if they had just gone to Winslow, it would have all worked out for them. He would have been making you know sweet corner passes to a wide-open Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, and who knows? They would have had a great switchable wing perimeter defense there with those three guys, and and who knows? Without Al Horford playing well, would they have made a trade for Kyrie Irving if Justice was their starting point guard? Probably not, so... A lot, uh, lot of questions there and no easy answers, but I'll talk a little bit more about, well, the Big Three Arrow just because it's such a pivotal point in Miami Heat history, and I'll ask the question that still stings many a Heat fan heart, which is what would have happened if the Heat had won the 2011 NBA Finals? But first, a reminder that if you or somebody you know is dealing with profuse sweating and wants to do something about it, then the product for you is called Sweat Block. It's been doctor-created, doctor-recommended. It's been on Amazon for a few years now. You can go check out the reviews for yourself, but it's a product that works. It works for up to seven days per use, and it's dry shirt guaranteed. If Sweat Block doesn't keep you dry, you get your money back. You find all sorts of reviews all over the place. It's been tested on TV by firefighters on the Rachel Ray Show. I've got a friend who's been using it Really enjoys it, has given him all sorts of new confidence. He doesn't have to change shirts in the middle of the day. Just feels much more comfortable. And best of all, if you go and buy the product now, if you go to sweatblock.com, you get 20% off if you use the promo code lockdown. You can get the product at Amazon. You can get it at CVS. But if you go to sweatblock.com and use the promo code lockdown. You'll get 20% off your first purchase of Sweatblock. Today, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. DirecTV Stream brings you live TV and on demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So stop waiting and get your TV together and DirectTV stream. You can learn more of directTV.com that's directtv.com Our three pack of heat scenarios, what if questions looming over the heat franchise. I'll be continuing to answer that uh, right now. Moving on to a sticky subject, one that's again a little bit painful for a lot of Heat fans. We're the big three at one two thousand eleven. This one comes in from Max, a longtime listener and also a contribute or a contributor over at All You Can Heat. Make sure you check out all of their great work. That's my former site. I wrote there a long time ago, and um, look, I, th- I think it's still a great source of information for any kind of Heat related content. Max does great work himself, and he asks. What does the big three look like if they had won in 2011? Well, that's like they that was a great team. They wound up pulling it together. Of course, everybody remembers nine and eight and Bumpgate and everything else. But towards the end of the season, they had won 21 to 22 games. Uh, they looked like a powerhouse, like everybody assumed they would be. They had some bumps along the way, but they were able to beat the Boston Celtics. They were able to beat the Chicago Bulls. Uh, they were able to advance pretty well into the NBA Finals. And then once they were there, things kind of fell apart. Uh, I made the mistake last year because we were kind of running out of content in between the wait for the start of the Orlando bubble and nobody knew what was going to happen with the NBA season. And, of course, they were replaying the 2011 NBA Finals on NBA TV, I believe, and I re-watched some of those. Those were pretty painful. Did not look, first of all, just the basketball in general looked very, very different than it does today. Uh, it Just no three-point shooting, very little Forcing shots, and getting to the rim, of course, much more of a, a big man presence there in the middle. Something Miami had, too. Look, they had uh, uh, Zydrunas Ilgauskas. Uh, I believe they had Eric Dampier that first year, too. It was not exactly a powerhouse rotation at the center spot, but they hadn't shifted Chris Bosh down to the five, either. But one of the things that obviously stands out most to Heat fans is that LeBron James, Well, let's just say, it. he fell apart. He choked. Uh, I'm not sure what it is about LeBron why he fell apart the way he did in 2011. I hate the term choke necessarily. It was just – I've made this argument before, I think, and I've made it, I know, in my personal life. The difference between a player like LeBron and, let's say, Michael Jordan is that Michael is – Michael takes all of those external questions about his abilities and even ones that clearly don't exist – and does it in a, in a sociopathically way as if we saw the last dance, if you saw the last dance, you know that he could take anything and perceive it as a slight and use that as incredible motivation to become just a ruthless son of a bitch. That's just who he was. And it worked because he wound up becoming, you know, one of the greatest players, if not the greatest players in NBA history. I think while LeBron still uses those slights to fuel him, hashtag washed King after all, I think he was much more sensitive about the perception other people have of him. Kind of recalls to me what Wilt Chamberlain was in comparison to Bill Russell. Bill Russell, uh, much more willing to just do the dirty work and to play dirty mind games as well. I think he was more than willing to use whatever psychological edge he could find. A uh, great story that's always been told is that, you know, Bill Russell recognizing that Chamberlain was. Certainly, much more imposing physically than Russell was, would regularly have him at his house for dinner on nights when they were going to be playing the, you know, the Philadelphia Warriors or the Los Angeles Lakers or whatever team that Will happened to be a part of. And so, could you imagine that? Like, I mean, we know that Zo, Alonzo Mourning, and Patrick Ewing had dinner together, but you know, they shared their their common team effort there with Georgetown and stuff like that. They both played for Pat Riley once upon a time. But Russell and Chamberlain, while they may or may not have been friends, and it's kind of hard to figure out whether or not they were, just the idea of Russell inviting Chamberlain over and saying, no, 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 come enjoy my house and feel comfortable. And then tomorrow when I put that elbow in the middle of your back, well, you'll feel it, but you know maybe you'll back off a little bit. And, and I think that's what Chamberlain was like. He was a little bit more sensitive to the way people perceived him. And I think that's kind of what we've seen from LeBron over the years. It's just there's a different sensitivity there than there are from other uh, players you know and, and I think in 2011 LeBron wasn't he had been going through a lot uh, he did not like playing the role of the villain as much as he said he did as much as he kind of played it up like that he he wants to be loved and appreciated by the fans in general by the NBA community at large and that just wasn't the case and I think it kind of fell apart there into the 11 I mean they were, they were up big they were up big they could have won big and then all of a sudden things kind of fell apart for them they, they look credit to the Mavericks Somewhat. I will always maintain that it was more about Miami losing than Dallas winning, but whatever. I'm sure some Mavericks fans can go cry about it some other time. Uh, As far as whether or not, you know, the the Mavericks bait changes, they did things differently, but for for LeBron to be mitigated, to be taken out of the equation almost completely by J.J. Barea because, you know, he just wasn't comfortable being aggressive because he just didn't know exactly how to attack that team uh, because he didn't have the ball in his hands the way he would over the next three years of the Big Three era – that was just very, very strange to watch. And so let's assume none of that happens, right? He accepts the role. Dwayne, in a very impassioned moment, Spo perhaps with a little bit more comfort, yelling at his new superstar player after just a few months of working together, says, look, get your head out of your ass and play like LeBron freaking James. Whether you have the ball in your hands or not, you figure out a way to win. And LeBron somehow accepts it. He does not become the super sensitive player that he's been for the most you know, most of the past decade and instead just winds up saying, all right, it doesn't matter whether I have the ball in my hands or not. It doesn't matter if we play LeBron-style basketball or not. What matters is that we win. And from that point forward, LeBron just accepts a complementary role, something that he's capable of doing but just rarely has done. Uh, I remember having Doris Burke on the show a few years ago and her asking me about whether or not she, you know, LeBron was going to be willing to to move more off-ball. This was like five years ago. Five years ago, Doris Burke asking whether or not LeBron was willing to accept a lesser off-ball role. Five years later, the answer is still hell no. You know, he just, he, he needs to be in control. You know, whether or not it's psychological, whether or not he actually performs better under those conditions. He has to relinquish some of that control now because, quite frankly, he's probably not the best player on that team if AD is fully healthy. But go listen to Lockdown on Lakers. You want that kind of analysis. For this scenario, LeBron willing to take a lesser step there, lesser role, kind of defers a little bit, makes the passes that he knows he can to Chris Bosh, who was playing out of his mind, to Dwayne Wade, who was playing out of his mind, getting everybody else going, Mario Chalmers, etc., And they wind up winning the 2011 NBA Finals. Instead of losing at home to the Dallas Mavericks, they wind up winning. They wind up celebrating. They wind up enjoying Is it. Zidrona Zagalaski winds up retiring after that championship. LeBron feels vindicated. The rest of the country can shut the hell up. They can go cry in their soup about whether or not the big three should have been formed. And, of course, they're much more hated. But you know what? After a while, it passes. Why? Because everybody loves a winner. Yes, they could all revel in it in July 2011 and go, ha-ha, we knew you were going to lose. You suck. You know, let's choke and all this stuff. But instead they wind up going, you know what, it makes sense. You form the big three, you whip everybody's ass, and we get it. Now we understand why you made that move and why you left Cleveland. Like That kind of vindication would have been huge for the Heat and for the Miami Heat fans, to be honest with you. that kind of win what happens then is you know Shane Battier doesn't come to this team uh I think you know Shane mentioned to me that on this podcast that he was deciding whether or not to join the San Antonio Spurs who lost to the Dallas Mavericks in the Western Conference Finals or to join the Miami Heat if the Miami Heat had won in 2011 he would have joined the Spurs instead he comes to Miami because he thinks it's a better chance here and then without the you know during the 2011 NBA lockout The Heat, in reality, wound up fuming, right, with that loss still fresh in their minds. It's just painful. They wound up having to go with a renewed intensity for the 2011-2012 season. You know, maybe they're a little bit softer. Maybe they're not quite as laser-focused, although I think that having won in that first year probably would have propelled them a little bit more. Now, does Ray Allen join the team then? Uh, Probably not. At that point in time, he was still a, a member of the Boston Celtics. But they made changes to the roster. They knew they had to do things a little bit differently. Look, I mean, Shane, his addition was a huge factor because with Shane there, they were able to play a little bit more versatile lineups. Uh, you know, Shane was alternating with Udonis Haslam in the starting lineup. Uh, Udonis more of a typical four, but Shane more of a mobile four who can you know switch. A lot more. He could have played more defense and allowed LeBron to handle more of the the three star, you know, small forward type players, so that he wouldn't be, you know, taking on that added pressure defensively. Uh, it could be more of a help defender, etc. I don't know that they necessarily lean into that if they don't have Shane Battier in the roster. I don't know if they necessarily even go the small ball route. Uh, it's impossible to say for certain. But I mean, would they have been able without Shane Battier? Would they have been able to knock off? the very talented young core of the Oklahoma City Thunder in 2012, that's a tough one. I don't necessarily think they would have. I mean, Shane wound up playing a huge role defensively on guys like KD and James Harden. They wound up limiting Harden almost completely in that series. And while, you know, certainly Kevin Durant wound up having a very good series himself, I mean, a lot of those games were close. And without Battier there and his tremendous performance in that Finals, I don't know that they necessarily win it in 2012. So instead of losing in 2011, they wound up losing in 2012. Does Ray Allen join the following season there if they've just lost to the Oklahoma City Thunder? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know for certain if people and players around the league view Miami as a sure thing. Like they, It seemed like they had gotten over the hump in 2011 in reality. And then once they won in 2012, everybody pretty much penciled them in as a finals participant for the next few years. We know now that didn't quite work out that way because they wound up losing in 2014. But at the same time, they were, you know, a lot of people again viewed them as okay. They figured it out. They went through their lumps in 2011. Now they've got it. They understand exactly what it takes to win, and that's why quote unquote ring chasers like Ray Allen, Richard Lewis, and others were willing to join those teams at greatly discounted rates in order to complement the, uh, you know, the core of Chris Bosh, LeBron James, and Dwayne Wade. I don't know that necessarily happens. Uh, I don't know what happens from that point forward, too. If you don't have Ray Allen, well, you can kiss 2013 goodbye. And then do you make another trade? Do you wind up saying, well, Shane, you know, without Shane, do we need somebody like Shane? Do you wind up trading a player like Chris Bosch, too? Obviously, you're not going to trade LeBron James. I, you know, it's just so funny. The loss in 2011, as much as it's a painful memory for a lot of Heat fans, myself included, I think it's also. A pivotal point there. I think from that loss, you're able to grow, to develop something, to to change and to become a better version of yourself. And I think that's certainly uh something that happened with this team. And if they had it if they had won in two thousand eleven, maybe they would have just kind of been accepting of what uh you know, that championship and maybe they wouldn't have gone through the transformation they did. You know, maybe the league doesn't change the way it does if it's not Miami leading this the small ball movement with Chris Bosch. So I just noticed I've been going a little long as I've been taking this stroll down memory lane and have not exactly been trying to keep up with time constraints here. So apologies on that. I will not be getting into my third what-if topic here. It's something I guess I will say for an upcoming episode. Uh, just a reminder that you can get all the sports news you need in another 20 minutes with the Locked On Today podcast. Host Peter Bukowski updates you on the latest news in every major sport, with the help of our local experts, you can follow the Locked On Today podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts. You can always reach me via email as well at LockedOnHeat at gmail.com or via Twitter using the hashtag AskHelloHeat. Be sure to please follow the show. As always, you can leave a review. Have been getting some great feedback, and I appreciate that immensely. Please keep it up if you can, uh, either by, again, email or via Twitter or via a review on iTunes. Uh, special thanks to all of our sponsors, but I appreciate all of you listening and taking the time from your day. Most of all, this is David O'Mill signing off for now.